Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Cubitos, and Jury Juicy. This is staying in. If you heard a sound at around 8 o'clock on Thursday the 13th of July, that was the sound of me popping with excitement as I finally get to sit down and watch the latest entry in the Mission Impossible series. So I'm just saying, if you were sitting down at 8 o'clock and you were like, oh, what was that? When like, that was, like um... birds fly out of the tree, that kind of thing, where <laughs> the, the camera pans back and just all these things happen. Yeah, yeah. Cows moo, dogs bark. That's just me sitting down. Wolves start the howling at the moon. Cinema. Um, Are you you a fan watch. of the Mission Impossible film, Sam? You've, you've never mentioned it. Me? Bloody love them. Oh great! I just I've actually just rewatched all six of the, <laughs> the yeah, Mission yeah, Impossible I've, I've movies. I've done that very recently as well. Um, I, I it was one of the first times I've encountered like what I would call streaming rage, where I was like, right, I'm going to watch the new Mission Impossible films. I haven't watched a lot of them in a long time. Maybe some of them not since the first time I saw them originally in the cinema. So I thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna rewatch. I'm gonna go through a rewatch see how I get and then so obviously whenever you want to watch anything now the first thing you do is go where can I watch this for free mm-hmm. legally mm. <laughs> you know what, <laughs> what service that I'm already signed up for is catering for my particular needs right about this time and I was looking for six particular films um, all with the cruise man in them and I found out very quickly that they've all been snared up by well, not snared up, they are owned by Paramount anyway. So they're all on Paramount Plus. And the Paramount Plus free trial is only a week. And I was like, ugh, ugh, I'm dedicated, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that dedicated to watching six Mission Impossible movies. So it was actually cheaper to buy the first five films secondhand from CEX than it is to get Paramount Plus for a month. So I did that. And then I was actually going to then buy Fallout as a separate uh, Blu-ray from uh, from CEX. But I found out last night that Channel 4 are replaying all six Mission Impossible films so you can watch them all for free on all four. <laughs> well, I, I mean, they were on Amazon, like, back in at christmas time because i watched them all then yeah and i think since then obviously paramount plus came out and they were like no there are films can we have them back please <laughs> <You've> <laughs> that's had them our for content ages. <laughs> i want to play with them now um and i'm ready to present to you the the official ranking of all the mission impossible films i'm sure you're all right. interested yeah okay yeah. i mean i mean i have thought about this in very recent times so i'd be interested okay. to hear your so view. Here we go. Two's the worst. Agreed. However, I go ahead. I'll accept that. <sighs> However, it has some of the best moments. It does, but as a film, it it's is so silly. atrocious. It's so silly. Like that's the and, only one I've and seen. I think, and, and I think the reason why is the original cut of that film, Pete, was three hours long. <laughs> And, and Paramount went to John Woo and went, John. 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 John.
people are not gonna and the and considering the amount of slow motion that he puts in his films and it was still three hours long i was about to say like to be fair the amount of the, the, the amount of content didn't change it's just like half the film was actually meant to be in slow motion that's just was not anymore. just slower john can we can we take down the dove percentage by about 30 <laughs> percent but yeah i mean that that film is incredibly problematic considering that the main villains the main villains motivation seems to be about an insatiable desire to have sex <laughs> and nothing yeah. else <laughs> do you know he turned down the role of wolverine for that part no i know uh but but the one thing i noticed that i didn't notice when i because because i had like i remember having the vhs for mission impossible 2 and being obsessed with it i even had like the soundtrack and everything like i absolutely loved it when i was a kid but and this is probably the first time i've rewatched it in about 15 years or so and i'd never actually picked up on the um homoerotic relationship between um stamp and dugray scott's character like yeah. i never actually picked up that i think stamp was actually really in love with dugray scott's calendar and i wonder whether that was the hour that got cut out of the <laughs> of the woo cut um <laughs> anyway yeah that's true so uh two's the worst then it's three and that's kind yeah. of damning with faint praise, but I think there's a reason why. I think that's. I mean, three was up there uh, near the top for me. Nah, like it's. I think, but that's what I mean. Like it's only near the bottom because there's there's four of the films to get in. <laughs> like, so three's good because J.J. Uh, Abrams resets the world, gives Ethan Ethan Hunt a bit of a character, but there's hardly any villain and there's no big MacGuffin. And, and it's a team. Just, and 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 it builds the builds what is like the Mission Impossible team. I I I would I would hold you on the fact that saying there's no villain. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's a pretty very good villain. He's okay, but there's no like he's a compelling villain. But I think in a Mission Impossible film, you need you need like three things. You need like the the, the team. You need a strong MacGuffin, and you need a compelling villain. Which is why the next film is uh, Ghost Protocol. Because it has a cracking team, it has a really strong MacGuffin, but the villain is absolutely pants. Like it's just like a man in his in his seventies running around trying to start a nuclear war. And then it's Rogue Nation, <laughs> great villain, great MacGuffin, great team. Then it's Mission Impossible One, and then it's Mission Impossible Fallout. I mean, I'm not surprised that you would put Fallout at the top because I remember when it came out, you were beside yourself with excitement. Yeah, he was popping. I I would have put I pumped. Mission Impossible One fairly near the bottom i don't i i think oh, the narrative the, the, the storyline isn't as as well told as it needs to be um i also do mm. i do love the fact of the it really shows its age because i remember when i watched it i highlighted to you that there's a point in it where ethan hunt has to find a character called max and the way he does is yeah. he goes on the internet and types in max.com as a way of finding yeah. this person, I was like, "This is this is excellent. This is an excellent <laughs> that, way to find." That something. is the worst part. Admittedly, like that is the worst part of an of an incredible like Mission Impossible movie, like the whole Job finding Max thing. And I think that's kind of reading, but reading between the lines, I think there's a bit of spycraft going on there, which we don't really get to understand or know about in terms of like posting things on specific chat rooms and looking and doing things in a certain way i think on first blush it kind of looks a bit silly that he's just typing job at job.com and then the first person gets back to him and goes oh yeah yeah that's me oh, hi hi how you doing yeah it seems legit but i think there's some genuine spycraft going on there but brian i've 
I've just got such a spot, soft spot for Brian De Palma. And there's that one scene, spoilers for Mission Impossible 1, and there's that one scene where he's in the booth with um, John Voight and John Voight is trying to convince Ethan that Kittredge is the mole. And why, while John Voight is telling Ethan that Kittredge is the mole and how Kittredge did it, Ethan is replaying back the night and coming to the realisation that it wasn't Kittredge, it was John Voight all along. And like these two things like play out. You've got this one person who's who thinks he's who thinks he's convincing a top level spy that, that the mole was someone else. And then you've got the top level spy coming to that realization that what he's telling him isn't isn't true. And it's and it's it's a remarkable scene. Like it, it is it, it's the one thing that I'd never really caught on to before um when I watched it previously but i did this time it's, it's such a good film and brian de palma if you've not seen snake eyes as well that's an awesome film but i've had a blast the last few nights watching mission impossible films i only saw the teaser for the new mission impossible film because i don't really like seeing full-blown trailers because these days no. they essentially show you the whole film yeah but i do know in the new mission impossible film there is a sequence on a train i don't know anything else beyond that but i do know that um, a few weeks before or after that scene was filmed, another big film that has dropped this year was also filming a train sequence on that very same train track. And I saw this film. It was Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Ooh, oh, that's this is the new one, isn't title. It? The fourth film in the series. Uh, <laughs> <is> it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the fifth film in the series. However, this is the first film in the series that is not directed by Steven Spielberg and has had no input at all from George Lucas. Because and... he's barred from making films. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> all of his properties are like, please, please. Well, <laughs> for a while, Spielberg and Lucas were attached to it saying, look, we can't do it without the other. And then like many films that have kind of come out this year and like last year, the pandemic created like a massive kind of speed bump and delayed lots of projects. And James Mangold, who has directed quite a few films, uh, various different degrees of quality, who really came to the forefront as a contender, as a director for this with Logan, uh, mm. where you've got uh, a character who is depicted here in their kind of later years really coming to terms with their own mortality which is quite befitting considering that indiana jones now is like nearly 80 years old i think harrison ford was 78 when he filmed this so it kind of made sense to kind of to want for want of a better word perhaps loganize this character because <laughs> many people harrison ford in it equally agreed that indy didn't get a good send-off in the kingdom of the crystal skull which, mm. when I go back to it, it gets better every time I go back to it. It's not as bad as I remember. It's almost the opposite of nostalgia. You know, nostalgia mm. is actually going back to something you thought was amazing, a bit like Mission Impossible 2, yeah. and discovering actually it's not that good. I find Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is the reverse, because I just have such an abhorrent memory of this film. And don't get me wrong, there's still stuff that is still naff. Like, there's lots of green screen kind of stuff in there, and it doesn't really globetrot much. But I, I genuinely don't mind it. I, I think the more I go back to it, the more I'm able to isolate the key scenes that I don't like, and I just kind of edit them out in my head, uh, just plucking one out of exact, just plucking one out of the ether. The Shia LaBeouf's character swinging through the trees with monkeys. I think oh, that yeah, was the that's... one that that was yeah. the that was the moment for me. I remember in the cinema that was the moment that kind of mm -hmm. took me out of it. Really, does anyone else worry that 
when we're speaking to Chris, he's just editing. He's just looking at us, just smiling and nodding. Yeah. But quietly just editing out parts of his parts of his life. I didn't like that. I'll just forget that bit. <laughs> Deleted. Um, so, so this is a bittersweet but satisfying film, ultimately. I was in two minds where I wanted to go and see this, but I'm a big fan of the Indiana Jones films. And I feel like I've got a lot more resilience now after the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Chris, why do you have <laughs> a lot of love for Indiana Jones movies, right? Like, like I like Indiana Jones movies. I've seen at least a few of them, I think. Um, and I mean, they're fun. Yeah, I mean, and they're there enjoyable. is only a few of them. There is only a few of them. They're fun. They're <laughs> enjoyable. They're... There's some lovely little bits of dialogue. There's some sterling punching that happens. Um, but like, <laughs> but like, they're just like pulp, right? Like they're just pulpy adventures. Yeah, which I love. Which I love. I love that kind of era. I I encountered Indiana Jones at the same time. I encountered uh, the Rocketeer, the Phantom. You know, the Raiders mm. of the Lost Ark is set in in the 30s, um, um, obviously in World War Two. And that kind of era, it all kind of collided at once. I remember on video at the video, the PlayStation, when I encountered it, obviously it was in the 90s, way after it had kind of come out. But I encountered Tomb Raider on the PlayStation and these action adventures that were tinged with some kind of archaeological mm. artifact, a MacGuffin, just continued you know, to really interest me massively. And I think, I was thinking about this the other day, I think I like the idea of Indiana Jones. Mm. I think that's it. I really like that idea of, okay, there's this mysterious artifact. There's all this myths around it. We want you to go and find it because God damn it, it belongs in a museum or God damn it, we need to get it out of the hands of the Nazis. And you're going to go in there, Indiana Jones, you're, you, you're really knowledgeable. You're very intelligent. You're a scholar, but equally also you're wicked good at fighting and punching Nazis. Mm. And but also you're going to go into things with a, a, a kind of a scholarly mindset of like looking for an empirical proof. Okay, yes, the Ark of the Covenant apparently, ooh, it's got all this spookiness here. Okay, the Holy Grail, great. You drink it, it makes you, you drink water from it, it makes you immortal. Okay, whatever. I'm going to go there as a scientist and as a scholar to try and debunk this myth and end up kind of getting lost in the kind of the mystery of that. And there's traps, there's secrets. The skullduggery, and you know, you know exactly who the villain is from the get-go because mm. it's pulp. Nobody cares. And the problem I found with Indiana Jones films is that obviously, with each sequel, you are getting further and further from that period that is the kind of more romanticized pulpy era. So mm. this Indiana Jones film is set in 1969, no. um, and his last day at work, his day of retirement, and then. It's in the trailers. He gets a visit from his goddaughter, Helena, who brings him back into the world of adventuring, which will, you know, typical indie fashion, take him across the world in search of another artifact, this eponymous style of destiny. But it's an artifact that, you know, he is obviously aware of as a scholar because, you know, it's one of those big things like the Ark of the Covenant, uh, for example, like the Holy Grail. And I'm not going to really talk about the plot too much, really, because um, A, it's a spoiler, and B, it's an Indiana Jones film. It's the same kind of beats. There's nothing really groundbreaking in terms of that plot. However, I can give you a tick box list, which I look for, <laughs> just just to kind of appease any naysayers here. We have a MacGuffin. Nice. Tick. Good. Good. We have a Raiders-esque title sequence, which we've not had since the first one. You know, there's no there's no um, bravado. It just appears immediately on the screen. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in that kind of Raiders font. We have Nazis. We have chasers. 
we have archaeological puzzles and riddles. We have globetrotting. And in the same veins, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we have a prologue flashing back to a younger Indiana Jones. Uh, it, when they go globetrotting, is there a little red line that goes from... Point yes, to Sam. <laughs> there we go. Thank yeah, you. To be fair, I don't think they would have got away with having globetrotting without the little red line. <laughs> without a little red line going from dot to dot. I remember when they, when they first travel somewhere and there's a montage of them travelling, they didn't do it. I was like, oh, no. James, James, James. James. Oh, James. <laughs> but then the second time they did it, I was like, okay, right. Okay, well, it's a bit weird um, the first time they didn't. But... No, well, they, they were doing a quite a clever little montage in terms of how they were editing between um, oh, right. um, uh, a kind of a flashback. But um, yeah, the issue is with this film, it's far too long. Uh, far too long. Well, that's kind of the, the that's that's a common kind of complaint for many kind of modern films. I'm yeah. I'm kind of a big fan of the Indiana Jones films as well. I think I've never really, really kind of loved Raiders, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that was perhaps just the one that I've seen the least. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Like when I was young, I really liked Temple of Doom. And I think part of that would have been because of kind of the, 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 the children, that kind of involvement in that sort of short reign and stuff like Kalima. that. Think, yeah, I think that was probably uh, an, an avenue in. And then kind of later on like my favorite of them is the last crusade um mainly because i mm. love the dynamic between Julia. harrison ford and sean connery yeah. um which Jehovah is what with an eye <laughs> they're at five years we named the dog indiana <laughs> do um, i just should i just sit back and let you do impressions <laughs> no, of the people sorry, Dan, I'm sorry. No, sorry right sorry, it's interesting sorry. temple the temple of doom is the one i like the least because he doesn't go globetrotting really it's just it's oh, basically primarily Chris. one location oh. and the theme the female lead unfortunately is really irritating it's not it's not got the same kind of energy and bravado that marion has in raiders lost ark which i think is just superb who can kind of hold their own really what you've got in temple of doom is this kind of damsel in distress which kind of irritated me really chris when you when when you became when you became a lecturer Yes. At a university, was there a small, <laughs> a, a tiny small part of you who, like, maybe, maybe at the start of the first, yeah, maybe the far start of the first day, you just like walked up to your desk, walked, looked at the em rows and rows of empty seats of students who are about to fill, yep. fill up your, fill up your classroom, looked at the whiteboard and just thought, yeah. It's funny you say that, Sam, because a few of my students have looked and they've written on their eyelids, "I hate you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, the film is far too long, and the issue yeah. is for me is there's just too many chase sequences. And I don't know if that's because I'm older now. Whether if I was younger, I would have enjoyed this a lot more. But mm. unlike, and Sam and I spoke about this recently, there's this there's this there's this kind of lack of care that you'd, Steven Spielberg would have when he would edit an action sequence of stunts. So, for example, if you've got a chase across, say, through a, a city of some sort. Spielberg would, would always take a moment for the camera to kind of look at a distance and see all the pieces in place. So you could see exactly how far A was from B and how and how they're going to intercept each other. What Mangold does, with the exception of the prologue, which is the actual best action sequence of the film, I would say, you kind of get lost in the chase and it just becomes this blur. And there's so many of them throughout this film. The only difference is the different locations. And I'd rather they'd swapped out some of the chases to swap in some more of these character beats because what this film does really well or it shows promise in doing really well that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull doesn't do is that you really feel the age of Indy and it's quite a sad mm. thing to see really it's not you've not you've not got a person who's who's chosen to come out of retirement and do this you know it's this you know that they are that they're kind of older they're a little bit embittered and 
there's some really quite lovely moments. Harrison Ford does such a wonderful job here, but the action sequences just kind of unfortunately dilute a lot of that, I would say. It's interesting because I know like one of my favorite things about the kind of the indie character is kind of his turn of phrase, his kind of the, the quips and all that stuff. That's that's what makes like that character so enjoyable to watch. And like the the whole thing with someone fighting mm. with swords and he pulls out the gun, those kind of quick thinking is, is brilliant. And so what when I watched kind of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, one of the problems I had with that was so much of the quippiness that you expect from a an Indiana Jones film was just related to Indiana Jones being old. And it was kind of lazy. And it was kind of, that's all you've kind of got. Him complaining or Shia LaBeouf doing the normal quips, but always pointing the fact you're old, you're old, you're old. And that's the only real joke we have. And we're going to keep hitting you over the head with that. And so that's kind of why that one just didn't work. It didn't feel like a full Indiana Jones film. And obviously you factoring all the other bits, the, 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 the silliness with the nuking the fridge, the silliness with the swinging on vines, all that jazz, all the kind of, the kind of hokey kind of cgi green screening effects that that kind of happens yeah and so that was for me i was kind of like you know what this doesn't feel like indiana jones and i kind of then i've i've not really had much interest in watching this one um so i'd be interested to know how it handles that because there's no getting around the fact that like harrison ford is an old man there's 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 no getting around that indiana jones is now an old man I'll, i'll give you an example dan there's a moment where harrison ford indiana jones runs towards a horse the camera cuts away cuts back and he's on the horse because they didn't want to show you him struggling to get on the horse but um well, that's the kind of thing in in kingdom of the crystal skull he would have run after the horse and then got tired yeah no they don't do any of that here no there's there's no kind of i'm getting too old for this stuff i will say the performances are fantastic phoebe waller bridge is amazing at this and harrison ford has said talked about the fact that she is such a wonderful force in this film because it creates this wonderful dynamic between the two of them it's almost like a, a kind of a slight parental relationship but equally also like a mischievous uncle or mischief i should say mischievous niece i would say mads mickelson chews up the scenery he's perfect he's you know he is he's just phenomenal everything and toby jones is just wonderful really is this kind of charming fuddling the, the kind of typical english academic you've got you know the equivalent to marcus Brody, um for example or john hurt's character in the king of the crystal skull really one thing i do want to say the massive bone of contention people apparently had with this film was they didn't like the ending. They said it was bonkers, it was mad, it was bizarre. And I'm not going to talk about what the ending is. However, I will say this. Indiana Jones films always have that element in them. Think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. They take the, take the lid off that box and all these Ghostbusters kind of ghosts kind of emanate from it. King of, um, Temple of Doom, you've got glowing stones and a bloke can kind of reach into your chest, essentially, and kind of just squeeze your heart. Mm. And obviously, the, the Holy Grail, there's a Grail Knight that's been there for centuries just mooching around in the cave there. And if you drink from this cup, it makes you immortal. So I don't understand why people will take issue with the ending of this particular film because it doesn't seem any strange or bizarre what, than any other Indiana Jones It's what takes you there, film. though, isn't it? It's what, what brings you there as a, as a story. And the reason why all those things don't... Like, for the arc, for, the, for example, like... The reason why all those the, the ghosty apparitions kind of don't get to you is because you've gone the whole movie like l- not learning to hate the Nazis, but but <laughs> hating the Nazis <laughs> yeah. and like uh, having them as com- like they get their comeuppance. You know? Really, and you kind of like Sam. I really hope you didn't learn to hate the Nazis from Indiana <laughs> Jones. Like, oh, I think these everything else I've read about them, oh, I'll take it or leave it. But now. Indiana Jones, they. <laughs> 
oh. and like and and why and you know and in last crusade why that doesn't seem like such a buck wild ending is because you go through that process of 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 indy's relationship and you know him going through all those trials to try and save his save his father so you so you you get to that point and you're there from a from a narrative standpoint you're there you're there in an emotional sense and that allows you to accept the the narrative framing of it because the emotional stakes outweigh the bonkersness yeah. of the of the situation that they're in so if you don't yeah. have the if you don't have the emotional weight there it just looks like a crazy thing that's happening but but it's like in all the best sci-fi and all the best horror if you're if you're there with the characters and there's an emotional heft um between it you know they could be having you know a shootout on mars or you know whatever crazy scenario that you want but it all seems plausible because the characters are true at the heart of the heart of it i yeah i think you're absolutely right and i know you've not seen this film but i think you've hit the nail on the head i think actually i don't think they earn it and i think they had the makings of a really good ending and they kind of chickened out Mm. Um, and that's my opinion other people may disagree with me on that but that that's my opinion really and I don't think they kind of stuck the landing as well as they could have done really with that and it would have been a really more befitting ending really it would have been a sad ending but I think it would have been a more appropriate ending I think mm. um, really and I think also I think one of the reasons why Raiders works and Crusade works is because the MacGuffin feels like it has a life of its own has it yeah. John Williams has, gives it its own theme you hear that which you associate with anything connecting to the Holy Grail before you even see the cup and same with the Raiders theme you know thinking about the map room which is just an extraordinary that that motif of that Williams has for that the Ark itself before you even see it mm. it's always been there as his presence throughout I don't think you get that with this MacGuffin in this film this film felt to me the same feelings i got playing uncharted 4 having played the previous three uncharted oh okay interesting in terms of the feelings it gives me i'm not talking about anything in terms of like plot or anything like that i'm talking about the feelings mm. because you've got an older nathan drake i was about to congratulate us for going through this whole conversation without mentioning uncharted and then you just swooped him yeah. right at the end no but 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 i think the parallels are there i think genuinely um how it's been handled no but in terms of just the feelings it gave me there's this this bittersweet sadness really i can't imagine what it must be like for somebody to watch this film who saw raiders when it came out of the cinema put it this way yeah. that that would be a, an extraordinary experience an older main adventurer a younger protege and far too long What I find quite interesting is there's been a real resurgence of like racing style games. And it's been one of those genres which has kind of been pushed aside because of the fact that randomness plays such a critical part of any interesting and compelling race. Like obviously, you know, big sporting events and big racing, there's lots of big industry and big strategy and technique that goes into winning a race. But on the most part, what what makes an interesting race interesting is when things happen which are unexpected and are random. And I think in for for a long time in the board gaming space that the word random was a bit of a dirty word, that mm -hmm. anything that involved rolling dice and moving a certain amount of spaces was considered below what sort of board games has become. 
and like it was playing wandering towers and things like heat that have made me realize that like board games can do it like board games can handle you know randomness and chucking things and moving things a certain a certain distance and it, and it for and for it to be both compelling but also unpredictable and the other game that sort of brought this to a head was when we played Kubitos, Chris. And this is a game from um, AEG, um, who is a company we've spoken about previously on the pod, from wormholes to tiny towns to that old wallpaper. Ooh. And Kubitos, you may have seen it in your local friendlyhood game store because the front cover is a block of cheese wearing lederhosen's. And it's a bold look. In terms of selling a game. I don't think it really does a great job of <laughs> of really selling what the game actually is. Like it's 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 the weirdest box art I've ever encountered. It's actually no, that's that's a lie. There are some really awful Euro game box arts out there, but but in terms of a block of cheese wearing lederhosen's, it really doesn't sell what what the game is. But it was a real surprise to me. I don't know how you felt felt, Chris, but I just found it like. It wasn't really what I expected it to be, or should I say, I didn't expect it to be as good as as it as I thought it was going to be when we when we started playing it. No, yes, like when you told me that we're playing Cubitos today, and as you kind of got the box out and opened it up, I was a little bit intimidated just by I, I'm not one of those gamers yet, I should say, who gets really overwhelmed and excited by there just being lots of dice. Yeah, I, I get it. With, I, I get it. I get it with miniatures. I understand that you know of all these different shapes and sizes, but I haven't quite got that to that stage where just it's just they're all six sided dice. They just happen to be different colors with different symbols on them. But now going back to that game, I realise actually, and and during the game, there's a real enjoyment to be had with that really, and how I I think there's something really special about this game in terms of how it pairs dice selection. Yeah. And with with that kind of tradition and how it builds on um, that kind of roll and move mode of play, which can be, as you say, is often viewed as being quite pedestrian. I love a roll and move game. I love randomness in games. I think my tastes skew more to random than probably most people's, I would say, because I I, I do like that sense of chance uh, and throwing it open to the universe to kind of decide what happens almost. Bit of gambling. So... So just to explain what the game, how the game works in a bit more detail, as Chris was saying, like there is a ton of dice in this game. The first thing you do, um, if you were to buy it, is to basically make a selection of different towers and boxes. And what the boxes do, they're a dual purpose. So they're both like towers that hold the dice in a little recess while you're playing the game. But they're also boxes which you keep the dice and all the bits in it when you're not playing the game. And... Everyone starts off with a bunch of dice that you get. And these dice, when you roll them, will give you certain things like movement, money, or some sides are blank. So if you've ever played a game like Star Realms before, or uh, like Taverns of Tirthenfall, or uh, or something like Clank, it, it works a little bit like a deck building game where you're rolling dice and trying to use what you roll to help you in the game, either by using the money to buy new, higher-powered, higher-quality dice, or using the movement, in this case, to try and race around the board. And if you're able to get around the board first, 
you win. And at the beginning, everyone starts off with the same nine generic grey dice, and everyone has their hot their own roll limit, which which is another way of saying a hand size. Um, so like in Star Realms, like in most deck building games, you pick up five cards off the deck. Here you roll nine dice, and you keep on rolling until you've rolled at least three dice that are showing a symbol on them. So that's either money or movement or one of the special symbols that you get from unlocking a, a lovely new dice. And I think that for me, like Kibitos presents itself as a very a very sort of straight-laced and straightforward game up to this point. Like it's very clear what you're trying to do as a player. You're trying to move around the board as quickly as you can, but you're also trying to increase your odds of moving around quicker by buying certain dice from the marketplace to to enhance the collection of dice that you have to throw. But it's at this point when you're actually rolling the dice that Kibitos turned into something a lot more for me. It's a very, very simple rule. So when you're rolling your roll limit, and once you've rolled three dice that have a symbol on them, it's up to you whether you want to roll more of your dice again. Because if you roll all of your dice again, mm. and they turn up all blank, you're bust. You don't get a turn. You don't you, move. You have to forfeit your turn. But if you keep on rolling and keep on pulling symbols, then you can add that to your pile, add that to your pile. But as soon as you roll and they're all blank, you're bust, you're out the turn, you're not moving this turn, you might get a certain little boon to kind of soften the blow, but you're out. The other players around the table are going to have some sort of advantage over you. And it's one of those lovely, sweet moments in games like this that really sells it to me. And there are, there are a certain amount of games, the games I love the most, that are able to do this kind of thing. I think I always look at games like Quacks of Quedlingburg um, which I know that most of us have played. And there's that moment in Quacks of Quedlingburg where because you're all pulling out tokens from the bag at the same time and it's up to you when you stop and you look across the table and you see that someone else is pulling out loads of tokens from the bag and you're like, how are they pulling out so many tokens? Maybe if I just pulled out one more. Yeah, that's not going to hurt everything. They're pulling out some more. But maybe I'll just pull out one more <laughs> token. And like... It's those little moments of table interaction that, you know, Quacks of Quedlingburg is quite simple. Like, all you're trying to do is get improve what's in your bag in order to get round the cauldron better and score more points than the other players. But the, it's the player interaction, it's the table interaction that brings it to life. And Kibitos does, does a very, very similar thing with this one very simple rule where you're rolling dice and because you're always doing it simultaneously with the other people around the table... You look across and you're just like, oh, they've got, they've got a few more active dice than I have. Maybe I should, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna roll. I've got, I've got five more. Yeah, I can roll, roll some dice and just push. But it's just that gentle sort of pushing of luck, that sort of promise of more, which just opens the door to Kibitos to be in this wonderful like table space to 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 gamble inside. And if there's one thing everyone on this podcast knows is I love a safe space in which to gamble. That's that's the one thing that we do know about you, Sam. Um, I like it sounds <laughs> from from you describing it. Like obviously the the the, the components are, are substantial in terms of the amount of components you're working on. Like from from yeah. if you if you look at kind of the layout of it, it's it's quite imposing because there's there's it's yeah it takes up a lot of space. It's there's lots of things to be thinking about. Um, and what oh because I don't play like nearly as many games as you guys do. 
um and like for me like you've got certain maps where you would kind of keep some of your your dice and stuff and it has things like kind of draw, the wording of like mm -hmm. draw roll active discard and like these are your classic yeah. kind of board game terminology how does the game kind of bring someone because obviously it's, it's using all that terminology front and center of you know how to play board games these are the this is the terminology you'll use how does it introduce all of those to a, a, a player when when it's kind of whether it's the instructions or the way the game starts and stuff like that because obviously for me coming in i would sit there and i wouldn't necessarily be kind of immediately okay i understand what all of this stuff means it might throw me a bit and that's coming from someone with a small amount of knowledge someone coming into it kind of brand new could easily kind of throw up that kind of figurative wall and say i can't i can't do so how does it kind of ease you into it well it does a very typical thing that i've seen a lot of board games do but it's nonetheless still works fantastically is it has a very clean um kind of player board which you have in front of you which is kind of segmented into different areas so as you're playing your go you're literally moving your dice from one area to the other and on each section it tells you what you need to do and it's very clear um second to that as Sam was saying, we all start with the same dice. And depending on what your roll in a particular go, that will give you the cash to buy other dice. And you could only buy what you can afford. So to start off with, there's only so much dice you need you can afford. So really, if I was to teach this game to somebody, I would only really focus on those lower, those cheaper dice, really. And you've got then space, once you've kind of got used and accustomed to the mechanics of it, you can let your, your eyes glance over and have a little look and read in terms of what those other dice are. Or you could choose not to buy them and just to keep buying those cheap ones that you know, really. So, it, yeah, that was initially my worry, Dan. But you're, you're in safe hands. You're in safe hands mm. with this game, definitely. And you know, as a player, that you know as a player what your objective is it's very clear again which is why racing is such a strong theme for a board game you know you need to just get the pass the past the finish line before the other players there's no secret objectives there's no cylon hidden behind the curtain who's going to be well you pass the finish line first but i secretly did objective c d and b f and that means i win <laughs> you know there's 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 none of that it's very clean in terms of you get past the finish line you win so at as chris was as chris was explaining when you're buying new dice when you're trying to improve the chances of what you get access to when you're chucking them around you know you're going to want to get move more you know you want to going to get you know you're going to want to have more money to buy that purple dinosaur dice that if you get the right throw, he's going to let oh, you move six movements. So on this good. Turn. But also, well also, sorry, one thing I like as well, going back to that push your luck thing as well. You could, if you wanted to, Dan, you could just do the bare minimum, buy the cheap dice, and you could follow the track that's outlined on the board. Or, you know, this is Sam Turner now. I'm thinking of here likes to push his luck. <laughs> I could. I, I, I'm on. The, I'm on the track here. But hang on, look over there. Just away from the track, a few spaces, is a little bonus that I could pick up. That's going yes. to take me away from there. But if I get that bonus, I could theoretically get back in time before Chris catches up with me. And that's where the game sings for me because mm. you, you can choose if you wanted to to stick on that red line and follow it round and kind of do your lap. 
Or you could, and it is quite tantalising, go, actually, I feel like I'm in a good place now. It's hubris, I know. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Like, it's playing into hubris. They're kind of like, ooh, I could, I could get, I could take advantage. But you could have a round where Sam has just been pushing his luck and he's bust. And I know he's not going to be moving. Ooh, I'm a little bit ahead of him. Now I've got a good chance. Now I could choose to maybe veer off the track a little bit here. Mm. But hang on, if I cross this line here, that means Sam's going to get a little advantage on the next go because like Quaxa Quedlinburg, it's got a really lovely balancing mechanic. So if you've got a newbie playing with somebody who's a bit more seasoned and they're going off ahead, well, the game does a little thing where it gives you extra bonuses to balance it out a little bit. So you always feel like you're in the yeah. running. Even if on the board... It, it seems like, oh, I'm not going to win this. Mm. It is genuinely a lot closer than you think it's going to be. So yeah. I think it's a very accessible game in that way for new gamers and seasoned gamers. And how many um, maps do you have with this? Because obviously the, you, you have different maps where the, the kind of landmass and the water waterways are in different kind of orders. Obviously your track is different. So like how many different ones of that? Because obviously that will play into kind of the replayability of, of that kind of game. Yeah, so the the replayability is, I think, um, really strong with Kubitos. You get four different race maps, and then um, the 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 dice are of certain fixed colours. So there's like a pack of blue dice, pack of green dice, pack of purple dice, whatever. But what those dice actually do is attributed by the cards that you pick for that particular game. And the game sort of suggests out of the box, well, if, 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 if this is your first game, then pick these powers to associate with these coloured dice. But then as you get more advanced and you get a bit more interested in the nuance of the rules, you can pick cards that complicate things ever so slightly more and more. So like the learning curve and the power curve of the game goes pretty much hand in hand. So it's got a real strong level of replayability and with that amount of maps as well you don't feel like you're just treading old ground every single time you know and you can kind of learn where those spots are where you can go for those bonuses or or move around so it's got it's got a lot going for it a lot more than the block of cheese and later hosens would lead you to believe <laughs> How do you guys feel about reality TV? Do any of you guys kind of do you ever watch any reality TV? Bake Off, that's the only one I think. Um, I watch quite. We tend to watch quite a bit, but it tends to be stuff like um, Master Chef, Celebrity Master Chef. Okay, so they're just kind of those, those kind of competitive kind of things. Nothing kind of like um, where you're kind of a fly on the wall in a in a in a scenario kind of like a, a oh there was that there was that one great one that i watched on um netflix was it the korean one or was squid the japanese one? Oh no that i was gonna say squid no. game squid game is not reality <laughs> squid TV. game that famous that famous <laughs> reality tv i must admit i find the i find the genre like post big brother the first series of big brother i found it a bit i don't know it was really interesting with big brother and then immediately afterwards it was like mm. so dan why do you ask the, the reason I ask is because I'm, I'm not a, a massive fan of reality TV. It, like, yeah, the kind of the Big Brother thing years ago was, was a thing, but to me, it's always just felt really constructed and not reality. And, like, especially when you get, mm -hmm. like, the mm. the house, the real housewife shows or, like, the likes of, like, Below Deck or even stuff like, like your goggle box. I can't stand it because I just I don't believe it. So it, it's weird that, like, I've, I've watched a show recently which is kind of 
with one of my favorite shows of the year and it is at its heart no. reality tv um it's a show called jury duty has anyone heard of it no jury no. duty so so jury jury duty um is a kind of <laughs> it's a hybrid reality show in the sense of it's like a fly on the wall uh look at the american jury system hmm. so it so it follows a jury through an entire court case from them getting chosen for the jury all the way through all the things they have to do they get sequestered and um they you see their discussions kind of they've been given special dispensation for being able to film all this stuff you have conversation with them, talking heads all this different stuff so that's really interesting but what makes it amazing is the fact that it's all fake everyone in it is an actor except for one guy in the jury who thinks it's all real everybody else is an actor the lawyers the <laughs> defendants the judge the people who work at the court, everybody in the jury, everyone he mm. meets is an actor, except for him. So he's in the jury? He's in the jury. So it's st- the, the, right. the show starts with him kind of going into the waiting room, having been called for jury service, called for jury duty, and him kind of sitting in the waiting room as he gets interviewed, and they go through, and you have this kind of uh, various cast of characters who also get called into the jury and they get over the course of the series they get put through all these all different strange circumstances never too strange that it kind of gives it away but always kind of just pushing the envelope like one of the one of the people in it which is brilliant one of the people in the jury is the actor James Marsden who's playing himself <laughs> and he's this Hollywood actor who doesn't want to be there and he's constantly trying to get out of jury duty and it's just a running thing that he becomes and he becomes friends with this guy the, the main character so to speak his, his name is ronald he's the guy who is not an actor and so it, it just follows through all these stories and all the different various characters but what's what's really interesting about it and one of the reasons i've loved it is it falls into like a like a a genre of tv show that i would put something like ted lasso in or other shows where they're just nice there's no kind of bad side to it. it's just nice and it all hangs on this guy mm. ronald gladden who is one of the nicest guys in the world and it wouldn't work if he wasn't incredibly likable and just a really really nice guy and they manage they they he gets put forward so he becomes the foreman of the jury um and they obviously they kind of they work it that way and so he then has to take more of a leadership role in the group and he interacts with all the different people and all these different stories are happening around him. And it's all about how does he react? And we're watching it as an audience member thinking kind of first, like you never think that he's in on it because everything that happens to him is just on the kind of, it walks a very fine line between kind of absurdity and realism. And it always just walks that line really nicely. And you're always just kind of wondering, is this going to be something that pushes him over the edge in order to actually kind of question everything that's going on? But everything else is relatively normal. Like the guys who play the, the actors who play the, the lawyers and the judge are lawyers. They've just got acting experience. Those like the, the guy who plays the judge, you would believe 100 percent the amount of times like i would pause it to look through like imdb to check the cast that that they're not kind of actual kind of a court clerk because they're just so unbelievably believable as that role that you'd never think that they weren't it's just it's just such a lovely nice show it took me a little while to kind of get my head around it because you have all the talking heads which kind of to me it was kind of like why am i watching talking heads of people who i know are actors mm, and he says yeah, right the first thing you see yeah. is everyone in this is an actor everything here is artificial except this one person so you know that right that's the whole kind of the the crux of the show there's no kind of twist that that happens but it's just been an 
like a real delight to just watch and just a really enjoyable experience of watching this all kind of unfold. So around like the early thousands, I can't, I can't remember specifically, there's a reality show in the UK where they tried to convince a bunch of people that they were taking a mission to Mars or a mission to the moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And the fun thing about that show, what that what made that show compelling and interesting to watch from a reality point of view is as a viewer, you every time you tuned in, you were just trying to look for the clues that they had figured it out or you were taking pleasure in the production company, pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, and they were still falling for the bait and believing that they were flying to the moon. So is is your fun as a viewer in jury duty similar to that? Are you Is the reason why it's enjoyable is because you're just waiting for the moment where the real guy cracks or you're just like, oh, I can't believe, like, he doesn't believe this is real. I can't believe he doesn't believe this is real. Is it that, is it that that's that that's enjoyable or is it just a just the fun of watching another human being deal with a certain scenario i think it's a, it's a, it's a bit both of those. i mean firstly it, it's just it is funny it's a comedy it's like it's like a prank show and it's kind of they never they never push the envelope mm. so much that it becomes absurd and you kind of you, you don't think it's going to work like i think with something like that kind of oh a, a kind of a mission to mars and that kind of thing i think there's probably an element of an, of the audience kind of watching that not mean spiritedly, but kind of thinking like these people are stupid for not mm, for not yeah. seeing through this, and kind of yeah. there is probably how an, could you sub- not? How could you not? It's so obvious. Exactly, there's probably yeah. a subconscious element of um, I'm better than you because I would have known this, and I think this show. I, I don't think it was subconscious at all with that. But like th- this show doesn't actually, have that it because really it never mean pushes. Spirited. It never pushes the envelope that far. Nothing really no. like insane happens. It 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 pushes it. But kind of, it always kind of keeps it within the certain realm. So there's one or two moments where you kind of like, okay, you're you're towing that line where this this feels silly now, but you do kind of get away with it. So I I think that's that's where they've they've walked that line kind of really nicely. And like everywhere that you go has got these all these hidden cameras and everything. So you're catching every little moment. And obviously they don't know like the amount of work that goes into this. They've like secretly rehearsed everything that could theoretic because obviously they're this has all been built around someone who doesn't know they're doing improv basically kind of everyone else is improvising around them but they don't know that they're improving so they've got to be able to do everything they will have an idea of okay today we're going this is the set piece we're creating for today and like here's a branch branching narrative of everywhere it could go and we'll try and cover all the bases with that so the kind of there is an an awful lot of work that kind of goes into that and i think there is a one point where i think someone gets covid or something and like as a production they still have to deal with that but they can't let him know so they end up having that i think that without when they kind of shut it down part of it and they get someone to kind of they use it to do extra rehearsals and stuff like that so there's this kind of kind of dual element of what he can see and what he's experiencing and our own knowledge we don't see any behind the scenes at least not kind of when we're watching it kind of when we're like pretty much from the start until there is a reveal from the start to the reveal it's played completely straight so we know because there's a total card at the start that says it's all fake but other than that that's it like you have talking heads of people who aren't with the got the the kind of the the lead who are talking to us in character and that was the thing that bothered me at the start because i was kind of like well i know you're not real so i'm 
I'm not engaged with this. And it took me maybe two episodes to get over that. Like my wife watched it. She was on board straight away, but it took me like a couple of episodes to get over that. And I kind of fell in love with mm. some of these characters as well, even though I know they're actors. And it's not the suspension of disbelief from watching any show knowing people are actors. You're watching someone be an actor, which is really interesting. You're watching someone yeah. play a character to someone who doesn't know that they're a character. So it's, it's a really complex kind of psychological thing that you're kind of watching. But it's just, it's the loveliest show. And I just, like, I can't, I've not heard a lot about it. Like, I've not seen it many places. Like, afterwards, I was, I found, like, a, a review. It was, like, in The Guardian. I was been talking about it being, like, one of the best shows that no one is talking about. It's on Amazon Prime Freebie. So, Freebie's the kind of the, um, the the certain series on Amazon Prime are available to watch for free. But they are ad supported. So, there are ads. And ads kind of very unintrusively they kind of about halfway through you get about two minutes of ads and that's it like very very standard can't believe we've gone a whole podcast without mentioning pete's new thing i know a whole podcast without mentioning my new thing but we can talk about that another time what's your new thing we'll talk about it another time I don't know what the new thing is sam <laughs> seems keep, to know keep, what the new thing is what this is no thing? do you not know this is you never tell me anything television. pete you got this is the this is the thing you've got to keep the I don't think you do, uh, you've got to keep the audience thing. engaged, right? Like the end of the, the end of a TV series, you've got to have a cliffhanger. Well, at the end of this podcast, we have to have a cliffhanger. What is what is Peter's new thing? Find out next episode. I, I think it's a tattoo. Oh, Ooh. oh, okay. Yeah, so you think hard. it's a tattoo, Chris? What do you think it is? Calligraphy. Cal- Pete's new I'm thing. into calligraphy. Oh, okay, I see. I'm into calligraphy. Well, uh, stayinginpod at gmail.com, uh, listener, uh, is where you can send... Is there a summer version of a long john? What do you think that my new thing is? Uh, find a thong, a sh- I think. A short john. A short john. A short James. Um, a thong. A thong. It's a thong. It's a thong. It's a summer long john. It's a thong. A summer long john is a thong. And there's no, there's no midpoint. There's no it's midpoint. It's literally a point where Long John's come <laughs> off, Fong goes up. <laughs> and it's the same time the clocks go forward. Yeah, that's how you know. <laughs> um, well, if you're not going to talk about your thing, mm. we've spoken about it very briefly just in chats. Mm. But have you seen this thing that's been doing the rounds? Well, I say it's been doing the rounds recently. It's a trend, which means it probably came out last year. Right. But, um, beige flags. Oh, I love this. I have heard of beige, beige flags. Beige flags. I love this. This is an awful thing. I don't I don't support this whatsoever. It's an awful thing that's doing the rounds, which is essentially <laughs> down with this sort of thing. <laughs> it's essentially where people in relationships who have red flags. So red flags are a thing like I, I can't be with a partner who's into this, who does this, who doesn't like this. That's a red that's a red flag for me. Yeah, smoker. Or uh, Yeah, smoker's a red flag for me. No smoking for me, thank you very much. Or um a beige flag <laughs> is somewhere in the middle where it's like, eh, I can't I can't yeah, I can't quite get rid of them for this. No. But um <laughs> it but irritates me. So the example yeah. I've spoken to you about already was somebody saying that their partner doesn't set an alarm when they go to bed at night. They set a stopwatch. <laughs> So if they go to bed at 11, they've got to be up at 7. They'll set a stopwatch for eight hours. I, I would, yeah. I've got to be I honest, a few, that's a red I've, flag. I've, I've found a few more here, actually, which is quite interesting. 
there's somebody here who's infuriated because every time they go to a restaurant with their partner, they always ask the waiter what to order. <laughs> I like to do that. So again, again, it's not it's not offensive. I like to but do you can imagine that. it being irritating in certain contexts. Yeah. There's another one here who hangs their trousers upside down, so they hang them by the ankles. <laughs> what do you mean? So they yeah. clip them onto the oh. ankles. Okay. That would get so me. On the washing line, I mean. So they hang oh, okay. it by the ankles on the washing yeah, line. Yeah, that would get me. Oh, that's what that's what I do because otherwise mm, beige flag. The, the 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 belt part, the the top part of the trouser, which is the biggest bit of material, tends not to dry if you have it at the top well, part. Well, Sam, of the line. this is why you and me just aren't an item. Well, surely if you've put if you're hanging no. it ankle ankles at the top, then all the water is going to drain down into the, the 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 belt bit. Well, no, because then you want the 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 stuff on the line dries through a combination of wind and mm. heat yeah. so you want the winds to voosh the stuff the more stuff that gets vooshes as bing would say uh, the more drier it sam gets. lives in hurricane country i do yeah it's got a washing <laughs> that just spins around okay i've got another one here another beige flag somebody here says that my partner classes drinking coffee as a hobby <laughs> well uh-oh sam, sam's got another beige flag yeah there are YouTube channels that would back back the partner. Up Anything's a hobby. Like Anything's a hobby. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, what the hell are we doing here if not talking about hobbies? <laughs> if um, not talking about hobbies. And um, there's one here that I, 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 this is a beige flag that it's not what, this is one I fall for. So sorry, this person wouldn't want to be with me. Always reading the menu ahead of time. I always do that. Uh, I do that a lot. I do that a lot of the time. Yeah. I get really irritated by that when Alex does that. I get really, I haven't told her. But I, I get maybe she'll find out this way. Uh, I, I get really irritated when she does it. I'm just like, just and I've talked, I have talked to her about it. Like, oh, why do, why do you do this? And it's because she's like, well, I want to know that I'm going to have a nice time. And it's like, if if you're not, like, are we going to cancel? Like, are we going to? Yeah, but from my point of view, is can they cater for my specific dietary needs? Oh, that's fine. That yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But like, yeah. but for example, they'll look. We'll, we'll book a restaurant like a couple of months in advance sometimes because it's a. We'll just book the whole thing, and we'll look at it and we'll go, oh, okay, yeah, brilliant. They 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 cater to the things that we need. Okay, brilliant, fantastic. And then I won't look at it until we're there. She will look at it like a couple of days before that we that we go to the thing just to see what might be on the menu that week, and I'm like. Oh, I so, said so I would do that, but that's part of that's because like what if I would sit down at a table and there's a there's a big menu there that I then have to look through, I immediately like unless something jumps out at me immediately that I want, I am falling into a sense of panic of he's gonna come around and ask for food and I'm not gonna have decided and I right I really <laughs> want to have decided quickly, but I can't quite decide between the the chicken, the fish or the burger. I don't really know which ones it which uh... one it's going to be. Whereas if I've had a like a little bit of time. It doesn't have to be a few days. It could be just earlier that day. I can just be like, okay, I've I've familiarised myself with this. I can already discount all these parts, and I'm just down to a couple of things. So yeah, like I'm I'm fully on board with that. That's, that's not a beige flag at all. If anything, that's a green flag. No, and and welcome. And him. the most important thing is how else are you going to be able to organise what you eat throughout the day if you don't know what you're oh, going to be eating in the evening? God, so sake. if you know that. If you know that you're going to be eating a burger in the evening, you don't want a burger for breakfast or lunch. You don't want a double burger. Yeah. yeah. If you know burger? you're going to be having a particularly... I did that the other day to my great shame. I had a burger for lunch <laughs> with chips and I'd forgotten. We were going for a, a staff meal that evening. I'd already booked a burger <laughs> twice in one day. 
You double burgered. It's not as it's not as momentous as the day that I had three roast dinners in one day. But um, that, again, like Pete's new thing, that's a tale for another. That's a tale for another podcast. <laughs> but yeah, but you've gonna if you know you're gonna be going down for a sit down, um, a lovely sit down meal. There's something really nice you want on the menu. I'll save myself. I won't fill myself up at lunchtime because I know I'm gonna be having quite a big carby dinner. How else would you know? So you're wrong there, Pete. Shame you, on you. You lot of. You lot but of. do do you think? I mean, we're all perfect. Let's let's just put that to yeah, you know rest there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But if we did have any beige flags, not that we see in other people, but we ourselves definitely have that we're 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 in and we're waving that, realizing that irritate mm. the people nearest and dearest. So it's not necessarily partners, but people you know we work with or say or, or mates. I I know my one. one. I don't wash <laughs> the suds off the stuff that I wash. See, see the shampoo as well just <laughs> just, just come the out covered in, in my mate did that my mate did that on his away. first day at school late for what? the bus what school did you go to um he was late for the bus he was running to catch oh. the bus and as he ran to the bus it started to rain and he hadn't washed the shampoo fully out of his hair and it just started to lather up <laughs> by the time he got to the <laughs> I love. I always love the fact that Chris went to school in the Beano. <laughs> all his stories are the guy with the tooth in the middle yeah. of his mouth, yeah. and just like he's just like straight out of a dandy comic. <laughs> okay, so you you don't wash the suds. Yeah, if I'm if I'm doing the washing up after I've washed up, I just clean the thing and put it straight on the draining board. Do you not do you not dry up afterwards? I, I dry up, but I just don't rinse it. Well, yeah, hangs it on the washing line. In down. between drying and cleaning. Well, when you're drying, that, that gets rid of the foam, the, the suds. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Exactly. That's, that's what fine, I mean. That's, that's fine. what Again, I mean. But that's not it's a green flag to someone in the house. But it's a beige flag to others. And I know it's something that I do that that waves the flag for someone else. And I should be respectful of that. I'm a singer, so I will I will go around the house, and to somewhat deliberately, somewhat not deliberately irritate Alex I will sing and create songs based on things that I'm either doing or thinking about um so uh, I'll sing to taco uh, and I'll just sing a song about taco that I'll just try and come up with on the spot it won't be very good uh or I'll be singing about going down the stairs or you like Randy Newman yeah yeah exactly exactly like Randy Newman just scoring my soundtrack. And I think initially it was heartwarming and I think increasingly it's becoming a beige flag in this household. I think mine would be I tend to eat twice as quickly as the people I'm eating with. So quite often I'll have down tools, empty plate, I've looked up and the person's like halfway through their meal. Mm. And I am 37 years old and I still... <laughs> Every derby always eats every meal as if it's their first. And their last. <laughs> and their last. I think for, for me, it's something I'm trying to get better at is kind of the overarching thing if I don't tidy up after myself as much as I should, I will kind of happily kind of like make... My, the thing I do most that kind of really does annoy uh, my wife is that when I make the tea, we've got just like some like... Um, some like um, metal tins for tea bags for coffee for sugar and stuff like that i'll take the lid off the tea and put it usually i'm kind of holding someone with a hand so i'll take it off and put it on the side and get a tea bag out put it in the cup and then i'll forget to then put the lid back on and it's that kind of just like absent-mindedness of just not tidying up properly after myself 
and like my wife has tried to very calmly but very sternly say please don't do that anymore please please i beg you i'm tired <laughs> of going there and the lid of the tea is always off what's the um what there's 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 a great adage that i heard that will help you improve that down is never leave a room empty-handed that's good yeah that's very good but i always leave with a cup of tea well that's you got one hand free then don't need to take something back and tidy up well if you've enjoyed this then um then please do get in touch if you want to it's at staying in pod or staying in pod at gmail.com twitter facebook are we going to join threads probably not probably not i don't know it it might it, it might be like more like we lose we leave one and maybe don't start <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us then do just send us an email or contact us on uh let's just say instagram our yeah. dms are swinging right open right for open. you you can also check out lovely things like unfortunately the steam summer sale has now ended mm. so it would have been great to like look at our curated feed and see what we were recommending that went super cheap in the in the summer sale. Do it for next time. But it's Steam. There'll be another one. So if you want to get ahead of the game, then look at our curated feed on Steam for video games that we that come heartily recommended by us. And we've got a similar thing on BGG, uh, where we're just listing some of the board games, all of the board games uh, that we mention on the show. So it can give you an idea of where to start if you're looking to get yourself something new. And uh, then Chris has got his little Spotify songs. None of them are written by Peter Willington. And they are... What What did we speak about that you might add a song? We add something from Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones and the Darling the Destiny. There'll be definitely something from John Williams. Oh, my word. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. The theme tune to Jury Duty. No. <laughs> Um, but the links to all the Spotify stuff is in the show notes it's the easiest way to find it it's a little bit convoluted and tricky and that is about it for this that was the podcast nice alright then